That was Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven played backwards, in which you may have heard the following hidden satanic message. So here's to my sweet Satan, the one whose little path would make me sad, whose power is Satan, he'll give you 666. There was a little tool set where he made us suffer sad Satan. This is an example of pareidolia, the psychological phenomenon of reading meaning into things. I'm Charlie Clamos. I'm Fayakir. And this is Fanfara Tete, where we have conversations, build connections and establish links with all the people crossing Fanfara's path. Pareidolia is the subject of a conversation we had with Callum Copley and Silke Sinja Yule, members of the Critical Studies Programme at the Sandberg Institute in Amsterdam. The conversation was recorded following the launch of the Critical Studies publication Can This Be Something Else? at Fanfara on the 17th of February 2018. The publication is a collection of essays that arose from a three-month-long critical studies writing workshop conducted by Amelia Groom on the subject of pareidolia. Callum and Silky will each read excerpts from their essays later in the episode. And we will play a live performance of Vita Evangelista's essay, Western Stamp in Affects, or What Makes a Body Human, which was recorded at the Fanfara event. But before we get to that, here's Callum and Silky explaining the concept further. Yeah, the word pareidolia is derived from the from the Greek roots para for beyond and idion for image. Uh, so it refers to the psychological phenomena of perceiving more than what is actually there, seeing beyond the image or seeing the image beyond. I guess that sums it up quite well, but um, it's not necessarily a visual thing, although a lot of the image, if you were to search for pareidolia, you'd get quite a lot of image-based results because things like seeing faces in coat hangers and in clouds and this sort of thing is a popular recognition of what pareidolia is um yeah and i think also going sort of if we if the visual side of pareidolia is taken away it is also um just like explained through the word epiphenia mm -hmm. which is more of a sort of non-visual idea of reading over reading meaning or false meaning mm -hmm. into something i think it's quite interesting as a concept i think there was some resistance from our class even because to employ this type of thinking or reading it's quite dangerous because it, it can bleed into like conspiracy theory and and and, and like uh yeah going way beyond facts or, or something like that and it's quite dangerous like a way of going about research uh, or creating knowledge um so i think yeah it took us a, a, a reading a lot of reading different texts that employ this method to kind of really get to grips with like the potential that it has um Yeah, but it I it's funny that you say that because I think being an analytical philosopher, my first thought was that nothing has meaning. Inscribing. Nothing has meaning inscribing. Like so there is no way you can it's read false sense. meaning. Yeah. You cannot read false meaning into anything because nothing has true meaning. Right. And so mm -hmm. this sort of like quite conspiracy theories and all these things only are what they are based on what socially we've decided is the right meaning or non-conspiracy theory. Sure. Um, so I, I almost thought that when we were presented with the idea that it would make no sense to do this project because 
it would be sort of almost entering too uncritically mm. into what's understood as meaning. There's a lady who's sure All that glitters is gold And she's buying the stairway Yeah, and it's not. It's like yeah. So we talked a lot about pareidolia and pareidolias because one of the good things about it is the in, that inherent multiplicity of pareidolia and like seeing multiple meanings is is uh, one of the interesting things about it. So like yeah, in my essay, I like I read, I kind of like read the same object like two ways, because in the process of just like analyzing, uh, my my essay was about uh, these the fatberg, uh, this uh, yeah, glomming greasy fatty object that blocks the sewers uh, around major cities but like I read into this uh, meaning into this two different ways and it was kind of just because I read I, I was writing basically one essay and then more ideas came to me and I just also thought well, these are valid as well and like um, tr maybe if I wasn't doing an essay about pareidolia I would have just chosen one that I thought was the most accurate like analysis of this thing but I thought well no I can I can say two things about this and I will say two things about this in The Fetishism of Commodities and the Secret Thereof, Capital Volume 1, Karl Marx uses the term galerta to describe the process by which labour of any kind is disassociated from its source and fixed into homogeneous abstract labour by the generation of commodities. The commodity is the concretion of abstract labour, which appears only if the potentiality of value is realised when a product is created, if it's sold on a market. Without a resultant commodity, labour undertaken is negated, wasted, annulled. As Keston Sutherland explains in Marx and Jargon, Galerta is substituted in most English translations of the book by the abstract noun, congelation. Yet Galerta is not a process but a specific commodity, widely available at the time of Marx's writing. Etymologically, derived from the Latin galere, to bring to solidify, Galerta was the jelly-like result of industrially boiled down animal parts, used as an ingredient in condiments and other meals. The likening of undifferentiated human labour to an ambiguous meat byproduct was employed to discuss the reader as well as educate. As Sutherland explains, Galerta is not ice, the natural and primordial solid and cold mass that can be transformed back into its original condition by application of, e.g. human warmth. It is halfzest, zitterned, that is, a semi-solid, tremulous, comestible mass, inconvertible back to the meat, bone and connective tissue of the various animals used indifferently to produce it. Fatbergs constitute a contemporary instantiation of Galerta. Their similarity in physicality, both organic composites, allow them to act as a substitute metaphor. In addition to this, fatbergs act as a literal example for the formation of abstract labour. When the seemingly insignificant act of excretion meets with the material waste of industry to form actual sensuous concretion in the sewers. The moment a fatberg is transformed into a commodity vis-a-vis -vis biofuel, this labour is revealed. The ostensibly non-productive act of using the bathroom is transformed into abstract labour at the point that the fatberg is reabsorbed into the commodity market as biofuel. Rather than washing up elsewhere, unused, the discarded products are reabsorbed into the economy as the facilitators of the biofuel capture and of abstract labour coalescence. Just like the family of frogs found living and feeding on a rotting fatberg, so too has private industry found ways to further extract value from society's detritus. Are you suggesting then that like the fatberg ought to be used as a 
metaphor for our current um, mode of production. Yeah, exactly. Because I think in the same way that Marx used Goethe, like it was uh, a, a commodity, but it was also like his metaphor for the way that, um, like the 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 specific individual labor that people perform, whether it's baking or mechanics or whatever, is like chopped up. It's like it's like homogenized into this just abstract form of labor. And he, yeah, he used the this mushing up of animal tissue to uh, as a metaphor for that. Um, so yeah, I guess what, talk about that. The, the the parallels between the fatberg is has been transformed into a commodity has been like recaptured as a biofuel uh, so there's a similarity there but then also it's um there is a labor performed to create that fuel and that the labor itself um goes unnoticed because it's it's using the bathroom it's taking a shit and thing and like throwing stuff down the toilet which kind of like attaches to like the way that i mean all sorts of labor goes unnoticed as well. Yeah, and also who gets to profit, right? Because there's also this thing of costs around, like, we we buy products and we use them and like they go, and labor goes into that and then the sort of the waste of that labor becomes a new product that has a profit for someone else that we then, then you then have to pay for again. It's sort of like you pay two or three times over for something that sort of just circulates within this sort of like, profit maximizing system. There's something like inherently funny though about it, like humorous, not just your essay, but just the idea of pareidolia. And if you adopt the voice of a conspiracy, it's like it's you can make hilarious jumps of like association, which is really productive and like but also very, very funny. Yeah. We did spend some time on this um, website. Yeah, for um, spurious correlations. It's it's a it's a website where a guy from America um, is taking data sets and sort of showing correlations between them, but in ways that things that are obviously not causal. Yeah. How, how, for instance, sort of um, like a rise in teenage pregnancy rate correlates with a rise in pedestrian crossings in New Mexico. We need to be cautious about spurious correlations, like those collected at Tyler Witkin's online archive, where we can see the divorce rates in Maine going down as the number of margarine consumption drops, or the number of how people who drowned by falling into a pool each year correlating with the number of films that Nicolas Cage appeared in. <laughs> <laughs> but you mean, like, I, I was, when I was reading that, I was thinking about like this, the, um, the bear tax in The Simpsons, you know, oh, where yeah, it's yeah. like... Um, he like Homer's surveying Springfield and saying, um, you know, I don't see a bear around. The uh, bear patrol must be working. And then Lisa says, uh, that's pretty specious reasoning. This rock over here, uh, I don't see any tigers around, so it must be protecting me from tigers. <laughs> Lisa, I'd like to buy your rock. <laughs> I'll probably do that again, but anyway. Ah, not a bear in sight. The bear patrol must be working like a charm. That's specious reasoning, Dad. Thank you, honey. By your logic, I could claim that this rock keeps tigers away. Oh, how does it work? It doesn't work. Uh-huh. It's just a stupid rock. Uh-huh. But I don't see any tigers around here, do you? Lisa, I want to buy your rock. I guess then you also had to consider it, some maybe more than others, but the fact that 
it with individual texts and then coming together in a publication, but then also becoming like taking another shape when it was presented as an event. And some some of the text that was read out loud also naturally becoming very performative also yeah. in that sense. And yeah. So yeah, so for instance the reading by Vita Evangelista, which um I can imagine is completely different than reading it because she had several people in the audience um sort of chanting. Yeah. Yeah. Which by the way I thought the space was working perfectly yeah. for because yeah. there's such yeah. a like acoustic, acoustic uh, <laughs> I, I actually when I heard it and also having read um her text, I sort of heard it more having read their text, I saw it more as a an obsession. Yeah. And those voices being voices inside of their head are like this sort of obsessive repetition of these Barbie sparkling shoes inside of you imprinting some sort of normativity or beingness or these also because it was so the word sparkles also repeated but intermittently there were thoughts or predicates that um Vita in some way has has um been met with as an individual and I think either through her her herself or meetings with others and I think it's it's also yeah this sort of for me it was more of an inside a mind of obsessive thinking but then that's also interesting because we were at the same event and we had two different experiences. So like also they're just seeing how nothing is ever really just one thing. Sparkles. Dehumanized bodies. Sparkles. Panic attacks. Sparkles. Bifurcation. Sparkles. Blood. Sparkles. Depression. Sparkles. Beauty. Sparkles. Harassment. Sparkles. Vandalism. Sparkles. Compulsion. Sparkles. Aggression. Sparkles. Peptic osis. Sparkles. to talk a bit about your texts, I suppose, or like, like I, I read through most of your Sylvian, it was, it was like a dictionary, looking at it as a kind of, that, that 
a dictionary itself is kind of paradolic because it, it kind of captures an interpretation of the world and then fixes it into like a very solid like reality yeah. you know like a dictionary is a reality that rather than a story even though actually if you kind of deconstruct the language that's being used it actually informs a particular ideology there's a sign on the wall but she wants to be sure because you know sometimes words have I would like to read the entry on coincidence. And I think I should note before I start that each entry in the text has two parts. A number one, which is the definition found on the Merriam-Webster dictionary, so that's sort of a generally understood to be correct idea of the notion. And then there is the second part where I slowly take it apart. Um, coincidence. Noun. One. The occurrence of events that happen at the same time by accident, but seem to have some connection. Example, by pure coincidence, I got robbed an hour after having deposited my paycheck in the bank. 2. The occurrence of events that happen at the same time relative to an observer and are therefore perceived by the particular observer to have some connection. Note, when is a connection simply a spurious correlation? This revision challenges two notions, simultaneity of events and the perception of correlations. Assuming relativity of simultaneity, a result of Einstein's theory of special relativity that is generally accepted in science, multiple events occur simultaneously in relation to an observer. Hence, general statements of temporal order of events across multiple observers such as the idea that two events happen at the same time universally, are not necessarily valid. Perhaps this flaw could be excused based on the argument of approximately equal space-time foliations, and thereby temporal order of events for humans on Earth, but that could seem like an implicit assumption too far-fetched to demand. Consequently, the predicate of happen at the same time has been removed from the definition the term accidentally has been removed as it necessitates unintentionality, which is not a universal identifier for coincidences. In spite of the possible subset of coincidences that may be successfully described as unintentional, it does not follow that unintentionality thereby is a necessary condition for the entire set of coincidences. For instance, the categorization of an event as accidental is incommensurable with Newtonian physics, and it is believed that complete knowledge of the current state of the world and the laws of physics, all future events are determined and therefore predictable, thus leaving no room for accidents, but only perceived coincidences due to a lack of knowledge. Equally, when assuming the inherent uncertainty principle of quantum theory, accidents are not inherent to coincidences. Rather, a given situation will produce a particular set of outcomes, which individually necessarily must have a probability below one, but where the conjunction of the particular set of probabilities necessarily will be one, i.e. not accidental. For this reason, the predicate accidentally has been removed from the definition of coincidences. Example, Benny thought it was a true coincidence that he had left the beach just as he felt the rain begin to pour down. And uh, I think that that particular entry 
has a, a certain weight in the fact that is it's very easy to say that everything we talk about is sort of socially constructed but I think this also takes on a different idea of also saying that even physically and, and sort of going down on a, on a subatomic level it's very difficult to talk about coincidences and yet we do nothing but talk about coincidences in very very grand scale and and therefore it's interesting sometimes to sort of draw I, links out of how we see things in everyday and how we act what we actually mean when we talk about things like i think language can become a habit and and quickly we lose meaning behind words simply due to habitual use maybe interesting to, to round it up by talking a bit about how this publication also exists in a bigger picture of um, alternative narratives or um, maybe also an awareness of um, questioning the way narratives or history actually has been put together or understood or maybe even taken for granted for a long time. Yeah, I think one thing that for me came out of sort of entering into this idea of this notion of pareidolia or reading into things or objects or situations is that once you open up for that awareness of the existence of something else, mm. that sort of multiplies. And, um, and I think almost to an ironic or slightly sort of paranoid in the non-clinical term, way pareidolia has followed also this publication a lot of like yeah. it sort of trips I think when you're 14 15 people putting together something there there are going to be things that are difficult and difficult and sort of entering into collaborations with other people outside of the course there's also a thing of un then seeing I guess or then being met with how the content of this also shapes a voice I think Pareidolia is specifically important to be thinking about now and like in terms of political context as well like I mean there's this whole thing about fake news and like what truth is there's that but there's also like in Maria's essay she deals with it really interestingly this idea of like hyperstition um, and like being aware that um, people I mean she talks a lot about branding and advertising as deploying this method but then also like the alt-right um, and even just like right wing people in general, some right wing people in general, like trying to like willing to existence uh, and just um, willing to existence realities that are really violent and horrible. And people are doing this in front of us. And like mm. being aware of that is the first step into like, you know, maybe countering it or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think being, I think because that everything is so everything about reading meaning or understanding that meaning is read into everything is sort of like a double-edged sword because there is a way in which we should talk about these sort of hyperstitions where you're, you're sort of, you're, you assume that something will exist and through that assumption it comes into existence. And I think that is one thing, but then there's also, that also has a backside of saying, okay, but then there are, like then everything can be fake or everything can be not fake. And I think that, the arbitrariness of meaning is what is difficult 
but it should in in a wider political sense it should be noted that of course everything is spun like every like every every story is coming from a point and i think what then the risk that we're then running is sort of this sort of like face fake news news predicate that's being put on um stories that people don't particularly like but not necessarily that do not carry meaning and i think yeah and then other stories are being slightly or made up and and as you say sort of realities are being created through through fantasies yeah. i think really what what i tried to do with with my text of this like encyclo dictionary was exactly to show that um that nothing is objectively true like there are no universal truths mm -hmm. but exactly like that that what should come from that lesson is really just an understanding of then who creates what we believe like who who has the power and the ability to create what we believe is true because of course we don't walk around every day being quite like doubtful of everything that we meet and so uh, I think the point of of can this be something else is exactly giving or asking the reader to sort of critically question who creates what what narratives where and with with which implications. Tete -tete is a Fanfaro production hosted by me, Charlie Clemos. And me, Faya Kier. The song played throughout is Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, played the normal way. For the next episode of Tete -tete, we'll be talking to Nexus ahead of their takeover of Fanfaro's B-Channel series, which begins on Wednesday, the 28th of February 2018.